joining us. Emily and I have recently given a talk on how to get the best out of your expert witnesses. And in doing our research for that talk, we came across the recent decision of Peter Griffiths against TUI UK Limited, a 2020 decision of the High Court that was handed down in August. It raises an interesting point on the role of the court where the expert evidence is uncontroverted. And Emily has recently written a, an article on the issues arising for property lawyers, which has been published in the Property Team newsletter. Today, we are going to have a look at the facts of the case and discuss some of the principles it raises. Emily. Thanks, Andy. So this was a High Court appeal from a personal injury case concerning Mr Griffiths, who suffered from food poisoning whilst on holiday. Um, he relied on an expert report to establish causation and the defendant travel company had permission for an expert report on causation, but elected not to adduce one. They did put part 35 questions to the claimants expert, but did not apply to cross-examine them. And despite having no positive evidence on causation, um, the defendant persuaded the first instance judge that the claimant's report should be rejected on the basis it was incomplete, it didn't deal with other possible causes, or didn't adequately deal with other possible causes, and lacked reasoning. On appeal before Mr Justice Spencer this summer, the claimant successfully argued that the judge below was wrong to embark on that inquiry into the quality of the report. And Andy, Mr Justice Spencer relied particularly on one case, didn't he? Yes, that's right. He relied on the case of Cooper Pe Cooper's Pain Limited against Southampton Container Terminals Limited, the 2004 case. Uh, and the particular paragraphs were a quote from Lord Justice Clark, which is, the joint expert may, may be the only witness on a particular topic, as for instance, where the facts on which he expresses an opinion are agreed. In such circumstances, it is difficult to envisage a case in which it would be appropriate to decide this case on the basis that the expert's opinion was wrong. And the second quote is from Mr Justice Lightman, where a single expert gives evidence on an issue of fact on which no direct evidence is called, for example, as to valuation, then subject to the need to evaluate his evidence in light of his answers in cross-examination, his evidence is likely to prove compelling. Only in exceptional circumstances may the judge depart from it, and then for a good reason, which he must fully explain. Thanks, Andy. So yes, Ms Justice Spencer came to the conclusion that firstly a court would be entitled to reject a report which was a mere bare assertion and gave the example of for example a one sentence conclusion with no reasoning or explanation but secondly that once a report is truly uncontroverted the role of the court falls away and third that in those circumstances then the role of the court is limited to checking that report is admissible, which is principally an issue of substantial compliance with CPR 35 practice direction. Well, I appreciate that it's unusual for an expert to only be called on behalf of one of the parties, but if Griffiths is right and if it stands, if an uncontroverted report substantially complies with part 35 and is admissible, then the judge has no role to play in evaluating what weight to give to it. Now, it seems wrong that the court should have to accept expert evidence if, for example, the judge isn't satisfied as to the cogency of the report. 
Emily, do you think this approach undermines the judicial function too much? Well, I think there are two competing principles here. Firstly, where the court has already decided that expert evidence is reasonably necessary, then there's an argument that they should defer to that expertise. But then on the other hand, the judge is the one deciding the case and it should be open for them, one might say, to weigh up the expert evidence in the same way that they weigh up the factual evidence. And it's interesting to look at the defendant's suggested approach or defendant submissions for the appeal before Mr Justice Spencer, of course, they were not successful, but they tried to balance these principles perhaps better than the, uh, than the actual result in the case. And what the defendant said is that there should be three conditions. Um, firstly, that a report should be complete in that it addresses all of the relevant issues. Secondly, it should be sufficiently reasoned. And thirdly, there should be no factual evidence which undermines it. And only if those three conditions are satisfied, then there would have to be a good reason for the judge not to accept the uncontroverted evidence. Yes, those three conditions certainly have a certain uh, attractive appeal to them, don't they? I mean, obviously, an expert report is only going to be part of the evidential matrix. But let's say the other side put in an expert report and there are clear gaps in the reasoning or the underlying assumptions. If our client does nothing, it doesn't either reduce its own report or get permission to call the expert for cross-examination, then the report is just going to stand as correct. Now, in Griffiths, the defendant had put questions under part 35 to the claimant's expert, but doesn't this call into question the practical value of those questions unless you are then going to go on and seek permission to call the expert? Yes, I think the case shows that whilst part 35 questions might still be useful, for example, if you elicit a useful response, I can imagine a situation where you are um, putting an error to the expert and they accept that they made an error, perhaps even a typographical error in their report, and they accept that and clarify it by way of an answer to a part 35 questions. That, that's then useful evidence that you can rely on. But part 35 questions are not going to be sufficient in and of themselves to challenge a report. Um, if, say, the expert doesn't address part of the case either initially or in answer to your questions. Now, obviously, the case impacts on single joint experts too. In the Cooper's Payen case that you referred to, that was in respect of a single joint expert. Do you think this means it will become standard practice for a single joint expert to be called as it will no longer be possible for us as counsel to discredit the, the opinion in our submissions? Yes, that's another interesting facet of the decision, isn't it? So we have a starting point that the expert evidence is going to be in a report. And the whole scheme of Part 35 really is to restrict the expert evidence to what's reasonably required. Now, if you're in a small claims track or a fast track case, the court is going to presume that no attendance is required and they will only give permission if it's necessary in the interests of justice to do it. And the commentary in the White Book in respect to Rule 35.5 is that you're going to have to make out a strong case that the expert should be called. Presumably, the decision in Griffiths provides you with that strong case, because if you don't have permission, there's nothing you can do about the other side's expert evidence. 
Also, we know there are cases where the judge will prefer a witness of fact to the ex single joint expert's evidence. So presumably, we're left after Griffiths with a situation where if the joint, or sorry, if the, if the joint statement of the two separate experts of the parties agree on certain points, the court's only going to be able to disregard their opinion if there's direct factual evidence to contradict it. What do you think? Well, I think that's right um, on the decision in Griffiths as it stands, um, because presuming those two expert reports fulfill the minimum standards that Mr Justice Spencer referred to in terms of compliance with the practice direction for part 35 and they are more than a mere bare assertion which they probably will be if we're talking about um, something that's contained in a joint statement agreed between two experts um, then that should stand as uncontroverted evidence in which the court um, really can't go behind. That seems to be the logical extension of the principle in Griffiths and it's certainly something for us all to consider while litigating. Um, it does seem ultimately in conclusion that the principle fetters the court's role when it comes to assessing expert evidence. Although we note, um, Court of Appeal Case Tracker, that permission to appeal has been applied for in the Griffiths case. And so we watch with interest to see if the Court of Appeal tells us otherwise in due course. Uh, yes. OK, so one last question for you. Do you think the uh, Court of Appeal will get the Family Guy references? I think almost definitely not. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Emily. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.